This is Will here, and this episode is with Professor Jeanette McGeo from Washington State University. We discuss her research on dream data collection and analysis. Her work blends psychology and anthropology in really neat ways where, for example, she discusses how dreams can connect with collective cultural models, uh, which reveal dreams as more of a part of a shared cultural history and identity and experience and not strictly an individual thing that's in our heads. Dreams are linked with our collective cultural realities. She's incredibly prolific and you can find a lot of her work on Google Scholar. Her forthcoming book is called The Mimetic Nature of Dream Mentation, American Selves and Reformation. And I'll also place a link to her faculty profile below. You're saying um, in terms of your work on dreaming and anthropology, um, I guess just to like reiterate what we were just talking about before I started the recording, um, how subjectivity and anthropology is accounted for, how different scholars tackle it in different ways, trying to get people's experiences. I guess experience near interviewing has been like one of those methodologies trying to get at that. And for you, you use dreams and, you know, interviews in order to get more into what those dreams mean and everything. But using dreams as like an entryway into that seems really fascinating. Well, I really do think that um, that dreams are the royal road to subjectivity, that when we're in dreams, we are in the territory of the subject. And um, you know, that can be a rather opaque territory. I mean, it's, it's also possible to, to see it and understand it through hermeneutics, through interpretation, but, but that's where we are. And um, it's a, you know, it, it's, it can be a partially opaque territory because um, we're defended against sharing our subjectivities with one another. I mean, we're so vulnerable uh, in that territory of the self. Um, but that vulnerability of, is the price of real self-knowledge because really knowing yourself is knowing yourself as a subject. Mm. Yeah, and I think that links to your work really well on attachment. And you've, I, I guess, I don't know that I've read many anthropologists that engage as deeply with attachment as, as you have. And, you know, I, I haven't read all of the literature on it, but... I don't know how you sort of position yourself in respect to like attachment and some of those more psychological theories. Well, um, I don't know. Uh, you may have a further question about attachment per se and and in my work on attachment. But uh, for me, uh, child development uh, is is critical to the ontology of the self, right? I mean, that's the early child development, I, I agree with psychoanalytic perspectives here. It all begins in those very early years. Um, we are formed as cultural beings in those early years and through various, through the way our cultures establish relationships, those early relationships. As um, in Vygotsky's activity theory, we're always taking those relationships in and making you know, becoming a self through them. So, um, uh, you know, attachment is handled very differently in different cultures. Uh, and, but, but people tend not to realize this. Uh, they tend not to think objectively about their ways of 
organizing attachment relationships because this is so emotional and then often so sentimentalized for everyone. So, uh, you know, uh, Americans can look at other ways of handling attachment, like Samoan ways of handling attachment, where you know the, the child is always in contact with its close relative's body, not just the mother, but mm. mothers and what is now called allo mothers, but you know brothers and sisters and other other relatives all the time for a while, and then you know abruptly turned over to usually a little girl, or sometimes a little boy to care for. And um, so that's a traumatic experience for the little, the little one. And um, the result is, you know, also the, the, the child who was, who was given the care of the infant often didn't feed them adequately. And, you know, so it's probably a very traumatic experience. And so Americans can look at that and say, oh yes, yeah, so, oh, well, that must be bad or hard or something. But, but uh, attachment American style, I think, can be quite traumatic too. But the you know the tra the traumas of everyday early life or something like that. I mean, the so we focus attachment on one person, mother, but this person goes away. Mm -hmm. So that I think can be a traumatic experience too. I call it the intermittent attachment pattern. And um, uh, uh, but again, you know, we don't see this. It, you know, so mother goes out, you're, you show up as a babysitter and the baby cries and there's nothing you can do, it's still crying. And so people just say, oh, but that's normal. It looks pretty traumatic to me. Now, mm. I'm not saying we shouldn't, or, you know, that it, 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 I don't mean to pose moral judgments here, but uh, more just to say, we need to look at what's there. We need to see what we're doing and how we're doing it usually what people are doing in culture is they're, they're building personalities, they're forming personalities, they're helping little ones form personalities that are in consonance with their societies and work well in their societies. So, but, um, you know, but our societies are not uh, ideal, right? We live in a capitalist society that is in many ways exploitive of us, um, that, is unequal, you know, has many, many things that are not virtuous about it. So here we are unconsciously making people who fit perfectly in that society. So we, that's why it's, you know, it's important to take a critical view of these early relationships and ask ourselves what precisely we are doing, where does it lead? And is that what we want to do or might we want to do it somehow differently? Right. Yeah. It reminds me of in one of your recent articles, you talked about like the super masculinity model because that one's tied up with capitalism, with culture, with the type of images that we kind of give attention to, but also give us a sort of model with which, you know, we represent ourselves within dreams, especially. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about how all of those things sort of intersect because there you have subjectivity sort of like an individual's you know model that comes out in the dream aligning with the cultural model because I think that cultural model integrating that into this whole paradigm I think is is one of the really interesting things reading through some of your work about sort of understanding that cultural model 
keep me on track here. But so I, this, this takes me back to something I've been discussing uh, recently, which is and that I discuss in my article, Dreaming and Its Discontents, published in Ethos, about the distinction between emotion and subjectivity, or emotion and feeling, which is something that uh, Shordash discusses and other people discuss. But, but sort of, I'm not satisfied with existing discussions of this. I think there's that emotion. So there's this work by Erkman on emotion, which you may know, which he posits that there are eight basic emotions that can be found in cultures worldwide. And his evidence for this is facial expressions, where you show that facial expression to people in various different cultures, and they come up with, oh, that's sadness, or oh, that's you know, anger or, um, and he says there are just eight of them. Now, the cultural constructionists like Lutz on the other hand say, no, 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 they're so different from culture to culture. And I think something in between that is true. I think, I think that emotions on some level are effective, almost quasi-biological states. Like when you're anger, angry, it's like, it's, it's physiological, right? Your heart races, you get red like, like Mars, mm -hmm. <laughs> like the Greek god Mars, <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, there's, there's strong physiological aspects to it. Um, and that there may be some effective states that, you know, that um, at least there are strong analogs for in all cultures, even if they're constructed slightly differently. But the other end of the spectrum is cultural models. And these are going to be quite different from culture to culture. Although there will be things that cultures have in common. If for instance, they have a similar socioeconomic system, like there may be things that, there may be cultural models that all capitalist cultures have in common, right? If, if, if cultures have strong structural similarities, they may have similarities among their cultural models as well. But cultural models, again, the other end of the spectrum, that's where cultures are, they are, are unique. It's just that culture, we've got to do ethnography on it because there's, there are no people like that anywhere else, right? right? So I think feeling is something medial. So I think that feeling ranges between biology and emotion and cultural models. So for instance, in English, you can say, Oh, I feel so angry, right? Mm -hmm. um, or you could say, oh, I'm hot. So you can go to the purely biological, you can go to the quasi-biological, but you can also say, well, I feel like they all left me behind. Mm -hmm. As um, one dreamer in that article I mentioned earlier, Dreaming and Its Discontents, um, said. And so, and I think her feeling left behind connects to a cultural model. She was in the dream concerned with achievement and um, with what I call the American upward bound model where you're, you're always supposed to, you're supposed to climb socioeconomically and you know, you're supposed to end up higher on the hill at least than you began. You're supposed to climb to the top, right? But, and she was trying, but she was having a lot of trouble and, um, and it related to many experiences in her past where she had felt others had left her behind. Like 
you know, sometimes her father was supposed to, her father was supposed to pick her up from work. Well, sometimes he didn't show up. Mm. Um, and then he went to prison and, uh, uh, and he wasn't always very supportive when he wasn't in prison either. Mm. So, you know, there's that and, um, you know, other friends that, so she'd formed friends at school that, you know, tried to supplement the lack of emotional support she got at home, but she felt those people too left her behind. So, and this was making it hard to succeed on her own, to climb to the top, right? Mm. So, so feelings, they, you know, they range back and forth. They connect various things. And um, which, which is also um, one of the things that psychologists have found that dreams do. Dreams are a state of hyper-connectivity where various aspects of your memory and various centers in your brain, they all come together, it, especially in REM dreams. REM, REMing, as you may know, is quite a special state. Um, it's not, we used to think it was the dream state. Now we know that dreams occur at other times as well. But um, uh, those longer narrative dreams that really do the kind of work that I'm talking about, that I believe do the work of culture, they tend to occur in REM sleep. I think you touched on a lot of interesting things. I think one of the things that has, well, okay. Thinking about, let's say, um, Renato Rosaldo's like grief in the headhunter's rage, right? In that article, he's talking about how, you know, he finally understood the kind of rage that would lead someone to want to like cut another person's head off. And yeah, within anthropology, there's an understanding that, you know, he is ultimately not from the Philippines. He's not from there. And I think, I think, I think at least conceptually, I think earlier in his work, he talked about how there was that disconnect of him ultimately not being a part of that culture, but ultimately not being able to fully understand and reconcile those types of feelings of rage related to grief. And I think that's something that's come up in some of my readings about emotions of how anger and rage I guess for lack of a better kind of term is like a different kind of frequency emotion that often there tends to lie something behind it, whether it's judgment, whether it's sadness, whether it's like another emotion that's sort of also there. So I, I guess in thinking about emotions and like the physiology of like anger, hot, and you know, all these different associations that we have physiologically and emotionally with emotions and what happens in our lives, I wonder to what extent have you kind of seen in your work that navigation between different types of emotions and how they've related to each other? Like, for example, about Rosaldo having, you know, all this intense grief for, you know, the death of his wife, of Shelley, and it manifesting as like the type of rage that would want to lead someone to like cut another person's head off. So I, you know, I, in regards to all of this, I'm, I am kind of a cognitive anthropologist. I mean, I'm also a psychoanalytic anthropologist, but yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do with the cultural models. I mean, say in Thailand, they would tell you to cool your heart or in Bali, they tell you to manage your turbulent heart, right? And, um, mm. and then maybe you'd go to a, a black magician who would put a curse on whoever it was, right? <laughs> but it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily lead you to cut their head off. Right. <laughs> so, you know, so, um, but so, you know, there's this relationship between 
emotions and cultural models, which again, I think is mediated by feelings because feelings are metaphors. When Dylan told me she felt left behind, she's speaking in a metaphor and metaphors have this capacity to connect things. They have, they're, they're uh, polysemous, they have multiple references, they can refer to one thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. And so this possibility of multiple reference allows many things to be connected. <coughs> so to connect, um, uh, see, there's gotta be an interpretation there to connect this grief. I think that grief and rage are closely connected. I mean, you can see it in little kids who they stub their toe and then they're mad at the table. They're gonna, they're gonna hit the table because they're mad at the table for, mm -hmm. right? Because, what, I mean, hitting their toe, they might wanna cry about that, but then the next thing is they're, that they're so mad at the table. <laughs> okay, so I, I think, you know, I think grief and rage, just like um, uh, fear and flight are probably closely connected, uh, very primordial mm. kinds of things, but then, they get connected to a cultural model, which is which tells you how to direct those feelings, how it's appropriate to deal with those feelings. And these models are internalized very early, very far back. And so, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, that's a really great way of thinking of it. And I think, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of data collection and research is like, how do we methodologically like operationalize collecting these types of things, right? Like, is it as simple as drawing a line between feelings, thoughts about feelings versus the physiology of it, sort of tackling them separately? Or is it just about recording people's experience in the moment, if you can, and then kind of working through that afterwards? You know what I mean? Like you you do mention about like a method of it in your 2019 article on uh, on dreamentation. I guess I wonder yeah. if you could speak on that a little bit. So, so, so which, uh, what's the name of the article again? I have so many. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ambiguity as dreamentation, oh, super masculinity yeah. oh, and ambivalence in American and idea, dreams. So, so your question again, now I'm focused on the right article. Um, I wonder, because in that article, you talk about um, like offering a sort of methodology with the seven different like types of dreams, yeah. like the as if dream and the. Um... So, so what I'm suggesting there is that that these types of ambiguity that they represent that that they represent dreamentation, that they represent ways of thinking about experience the experiences of the subject um, that's similar to, uh, in some ways, to a logical way of thinking about things in that it has analytic and synthetic components. You know, the idea is you wanna break things down and then put them back together again, right? Well, that's just what we do in, when we're writing a scholarly paper in logical analysis, right? You know, you, you do a reading for a course and you analyze it, which is, you know, you kind of break it down into parts and see what's there, right? Well, I'm suggesting that that um, ambiguity represents a visual way of doing that, and hence the way of doing that that dreams use. The dreams are doing the same thing 
we're doing now, that dreams are doing the same thing that, we're, that you do in waking life, that they're trying to think through things. They just have a somewhat different way of doing it. And that if you look at different types of ambiguity, you can see that some of them disaggregate images. They break images down into parts more or less completely. And other types of ambiguity kind of, you know, but I think, you know, that, that narrative is the synthetic component of dreams. Dream narratives kind of try to put it all back together again. But so dream ambiguity kind of breaks it down and then dream narratives kind of put, puts it back together. So um, yeah, so the, the seven types of ambiguity are a way of thinking about dreams. And you know, it's a method that would start with looking for types of ambiguity in dreams. And, uh, but then of course you need a lot of data too, right? And the data is always gonna be the individual and their associations to dreams and their life history. And if they're willing to do some pre-association with you, that's great too, or some role-playing, that's great too. Mm. But you want as much information from them uh, as they're willing and able to give you. Right. And I guess that, that links to like your background in like more cognitive anthropology, um, sort of interplaying with like psychoanalysis and, and much more, um, I guess what we'd consider more like psychologically oriented um, I guess, type of like considerations in your work. And yeah, I guess I wonder, um, I wonder to what extent you would consider like, let's say like a, something like a William Dressler's uh, cultural consonants and cultural consensus model of, you know, linking like people's anxieties, um, and how that tends to be related to how well they sort of coincide with, let's say, the dominant kind of cultural model that within which they're working through. You know, I guess I wonder, like, to what extent you think um, that sort of coincides with what we're seeing and how we live our lives today, where, you know, we have the internet at our finger fingertips, where we can join, I guess, groups of people so, that we so, haven't i'm sorry i'm tempted to interrupt here just because i'm afraid you're going to pile so much on and i'm not going to remember the early question by the time right so let me try to remember that and let me respond to the first part and then maybe we can go on to what you're talking about now so the cultural consonant stuff well you know i i really believe in cultural consonants and i think that's an interesting way to assess what the cultural models are um but the thing is that uh, cultural models are in some way or another always a Procrustean bed. They, they, they don't totally fit. They weren't made for you. They weren't made for me. They were made, you know, they were made over time by lots of people. And in some sense, they represent a set of norms. So uh, they're also, uh, maps and guides and tell you how to live in a social world and tell you how to succeed in a social world. And so it makes perfect sense to me that what the cultural consonants theorists say is true, which is you ha you're happy and, an ex and experience well-being in as much as you're consonant with the prevailing cultural models. Hmm. 
But in my view, the, the human condition is we ain't, <laughs> right? We try, we try, God, you know, we have to have those maps to live in a cultural world. You've got to have those maps and you've got to get them as early as possible. But uh, they, you know, they, they, to some extent don't work. Right. And that means they have to be changed. They have to be changed for each of us individually and they have to be changed for our groups as well. And I think we do that work in dreams. So dreams are about cultural dissonance. And believe me, there's more of that than cultural consonants. <laughs> that's, yeah, I think that's, it makes me think, wonder to what extent, you know, what the implications are that for, for like methods, right? Because I guess traditionally anthropology, um, we often conceptualize it as like, you know, focus on groups and uh, participant observer models and at the same time there's this recognition that yeah there is more dissonance than anything and having to get the individual's subjective experience is an important part of contextualizing the sort of group experience I don't know if you sort of agree with that kind of statement yes I do it's um Psychological anthropologists in particular have always been trying to get below the surface of life, right? Mm. But, uh, but uh, you know, up through the mid-20th centuries, they had very paternalistic, or at least some of them, not all of them, that's an overgeneralization. Some of them had uh, paternalistic attitudes about how to do that. So we need, you know, it's, we're treading somewhat dangerous territory here, because again, this is a place where we're all vulnerable, but a very rich territory as well. But uh, yeah, so next question. In the article, you talk about Shakespeare's sonnet, um, how, I don't remember who was talking about it, but in terms of like it being very specific to a time, place and culture, I'm sorry? Beautiful poem, Bear Ruin Choirs Were Late, uh, The Bird Sang or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, and in the article, you're talking about how um, the meanings would be available to someone who's middle upper class English, whose mothers read to them sonnets, who grew up in a world that recalled King Henry's pillages, like all these different like contextual parts, right? And I wonder, you know, it, it really, I think, speaks a lot what you're talking about in terms of like cultural models and individual subjectivity, how there's this connection to it. And I wonder how, what you think about like Joseph Campbell and like the these kind of more generalist interpretations of like cultural stories that have been sort of I guess in some ways cobbled together to like have this sort of grand interpretation that kind of puts all cultures under like the same thing in order to construct these archetypes like you know the hero's myth and and all these stories of like I think it resonates with the Western audience, but I think has gotten some criticism as maybe not being as generalized as people assume. So I don't know if you have like sort of thoughts or like experiences dealing with like Joseph Campbell or any of these types of mythologies. So I came originally myself from an interest in Young and um, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces is, is a wonderful book and it's fun to read. and. It's, it's very multicultural, you know, he talks about all these stories in different cultures. Um, uh, so, but for him, 
And for Jung, the hero is where it's at, right? And in some sense or another, I don't know if you know James Hillman's later work on Jung, which is, if you don't take a look at it, it's very interesting. He was really hot for a while, but I don't know. I'm sure Jungians still read him, but um, he's, he's, very, he's very fun to read too. He's a good writer. And um, uh, so, and he takes a kind of a, a critical look at all of this. But um, uh, it's, you know, it's a question of choosing your myth in some sense or another. So there may be some myths that work the worldwide, right? I mean, American superhero movies, they sell very well <laughs> in many other cultures, you know, uh, it works, right? And, and maybe it's a myth that works particularly in modernity. And so as a lot of places are becoming modern, um, you know, that may help as well. But, but, you know, that's not the only myth. That's the myth we focused on. Why? Well, uh, uh, patriarchal culture where, you know, you know, Freud got it right. Oedipus, father, son is, you know, the main thing and what it's all about, right? And so, but so, um, and that, that may be everywhere, but it's not the only thing that's everywhere. Or it may be very strong and dominant in patriarchal cultures. And uh, most cultures uh, on the earth today and going pretty far back historically are patriarchal. So uh, yeah, that might be a very relevant myth for all those places, but I'm not sure that's the way we want it to be. But, and there are other myths there and there's certainly other myths that human beings have drawn upon and draw upon more in other cultures or draw upon more at different historical times. And we're trying, I think we're trying collectively to think that through. And first, you know, we do it by, you know, starting to co-opt a little. Now we've got some female superheroes who have a different orientation, right? So are, 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 is, is that patriarchal myth co-opting women or are women co-opting it? Probably a bit of both. Um, but, you know, I mean, we keep trying to rewrite the myths and, um, and, and it's, uh, we do it also in our dreams, I think, you know, that we've got these various myths, various stories relate to our models and our models are tethered to our socioeconomic and political systems and the moralities that go with those. And so we're working on changing it all, right? We hope to become more human. Right. Yeah, that sounds really awesome. I I don't really have any more questions, but I was wondering if you had like a, a last word or sort of maybe a statement on where you're sort of going in your research, like what direction it's taking you. Well, I just finished a book that I submitted and I will sooner or later, I hope, get published, which kind of tries to bring all of this together. It's called um, Mimesis in the Dream. Mm. Um, and uh, so where, so that's, that's, that's the immediate next step for me. Um, beyond that, uh, I'm hoping to uh, do something, stage a conference or something, which may bring together thought about the dream, recent thought about the dream, in anthropology and psychology. Um, uh, you know, our, our disciplines are at this point so separate and psychology 
sort of politically and economically is very much the dominant discipline there. You know, they're very much more powerful as a discipline than, than we are in anthropology. Um, and to some extent, they've done that by uh, aligning themselves with the science model of research. And uh, I think they've gotten a lot out of that. A lot of interesting research has come out of it, but I think it needs to be linked back to a larger view of the human condition and of, uh, in the terms of this interview, subjectivity, our actual experience of things. Um, and with you know, a larger humanistic framework. And so that's, that's what I intend to be working on uh, in the immediate time going forward. That sounds really wonderful. That sounds really like interdisciplinary. That's really great. I really thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on. I, I've been really fascinated with like exploring subjectivities and I think dreams is a really fascinating and insightful way of doing that. So I really appreciate you coming on. Well, it, it's been so nice meeting you, Lucas, and I hope to see you at future meetings of the SPA, the Society for Psychological Anthropology or the American Anthropological Meeting. So if you're coming to those meetings, let me know and maybe we can meet uh, after COVID face-to-face. -face. Yeah, definitely. That sounds really great.